Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur with your host, Steve Kidd, third-generation minister and 30-year business coach. Listen in as amazing, world-changing authors, speakers, and coaches share their struggles and victories, and hear from best-selling authors' insight into how you, too, can live your life as a thriving entrepreneur. This is Steve. Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur. Thanks for being with us here today as we talk about being the best you, living your full and complete life, your whole life long, really learning how to discover and then dive in to that thing that you're meant to do. So often, you know, you meet people and they feel kind of aimless, right? You know, they're kind of moving around through life, not doing what they were meant to do. But there really truly is on each of us, there is some things that we are really meant to do. There are some messages that are on our heart that need to be shared with the world. There are some jobs that we need to be the ones to do. There are some advances in the world that if we don't do them, I mean, who's going to do them? You have to be open to being fully you. Now, here's the cool part about it. Um, you know, where we start out in life does not define where we end up. In fact, often, especially early on, you know, when we're young adults or even teenagers, we find ourselves having a dog that barks in the background and other things like that. No, but we find ourselves in a place where who, who we intended to be who we thought we were going to be doesn't end up being who we end up being. Now, there's some things that end up being the same. Often the heart and soul and core of who we are, you know, weaves its thread throughout the course of our entire life. And uh, we, at the end of our lives, or even in the middle of our life, find and see how connected everything in our life was. But there are those times when it seems like, oh my goodness, how could any of this come together? There are those times, especially when we're young adults, when we feel passionate about something. We go to school um, or we don't, um, you know, and we study something because we know that's what's going to happen. And we have a belief system. Um, you know, and then life hops up and challenges come around to really, you know, make you rethink, is this who I am? Is this how I want to live? Is this me? Right? And it's okay for us to redefine who we are, to take a look at throughout the course of our life and be open to and willing to do a complete reboot. To be like, you know what, I was going down this path, but what I discovered in front of me was something greater, something better. I was researching this thing and I found an answer that was maybe even in some cases exactly the opposite of what I was looking for. I studied, how many of us know, you know, what it's like to study something in school and then be dead set that that's what we're going to do for our whole life. And then God laughs. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. He says, all right, there is a piece of who you are that that meets and uh, would be part of what I have for you in the life. But uh, there's so much more to it. And as we begin to dive into our life, as we begin to be open to those twists and turns, we find that exciting and dynamic life that we really honestly never, never expected, that kind of come up on us. Um, so I encourage you today, all of, uh, there's so much great information I'm going to bring with you with the guests that I've got for you. I've got some really exciting guests and I'm looking forward to presenting them to you. But um, I want you to really be listening 
to, you know, this is where they started, but now, but then. It's not so much about where you start out. It's not even necessarily about your middle. It's about can you make the switch when new information comes, when you learn more, when you know better, do you know how to do better? And are you open to being the best you every day, to living your life as a thriving entrepreneur in all that you do? Whether you're working for a company or you have your own company, I want to see you thrive. That's why I love our website that is wehelpyouthrive.com because more than anything else, that's what I want to see you do. I want to be here to help you thrive in your life and your business, in all that you do, to feel blessed, to know that there is a path and a purpose. And yeah, sometimes you're gonna feel like you're right on it, and other times you feel like you totally missed it, but don't fret. There is a plan, there is a path, there is a purpose, and as you move along, you will find yourself moving towards that thing that is the real and true you. And you will thrive like you never knew you were going to because you stepped out, because you were open to that one and only thing. And that's living every day of your life as the best you possible and to being a thriving entrepreneur. We're going to take our first quick commercial break and then we'll be right back here on Thriving Entrepreneur. You've heard Kathy and I talk about it. You've seen the workshops. You have watched as others of your friends have become a best-selling author. And now it's your turn. Let me ask you this. What would being a best-selling author do for your business? Over 80% of people surveyed said that they want to write a book, which means that if you're listening, you probably are one of those people. Now is your time because you have a message that needs to be shared. That message is not for you. It's not for your ego. It is because it serves other people. Kathy and I are here to help you share your unique brilliance with the world. All you need to do is go to wehelpyouthrive.com, check us out, and find out how you can be a best-selling author today. Welcome back to Thriving Entrepreneur. This is Steve. Welcome back. You know, there are those people that have been in our lives for all or most of our lives and they have written books, they have given talks, they have done things that are just mind-blowing and uh, you know sometimes we meet them when they're young uh, or even when we're young and uh, you know we aspire to get to know them. We aspire even sometimes to be them, right? Um, And then life goes on and we begin to find our own niche in the world and yet Things that they've taught us, things that we've read, that they've written, all of those kind of things have made a marked difference in our life. Today for me is one of those guests. I cannot wait to introduce this guest to you. In fact, uh, he and I were having a conversation before we quote-unquote officially hit record. And um, I put actually the last, you know, five or ten seconds of that on before I officially introduced him. And I'm going to ask you to bear with me in this particular case. As you hear us, just kind of chat with each other for a minute, and then I'll introduce to you my very, very special guest. I've read many of them, including, uh, you know, when my kids were still around, uh, we had your your first devotional book. What was it called? Um, Family Devotions. Yeah. We had that book. We went through that. I think we probably went through that book five times. <laughs> I rewrote it at least nine times. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, far away, we're we're okay. we're in up time. Uh, so join me in welcoming Josh McDowell. Josh, I'm so uh, honored to have you here on the show today. 
tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and all the incredible things you've done in the world. You know, maybe it's an honor for you to have me on, but it's an honor for me to be on with you. So we're both honored today. Uh, my name is Josh McDowell. I'm uh, married to probably the most incredible woman in the world, Dottie. I never knew a woman could love a man as much as she loves me. And she's probably changed my life more than Jesus. And uh, I have four kids, three daughters and a son who are, I'm humbled to have them. I never knew you could have a good marriage, let alone a good family from what I came from. And I've got 10 grandchildren. They're not cheap, but 10 grandkids. And basically I'm a, I don't know, I guess a writer and speaker, a communicator. Uh, I've given over, it's around 30,000 talks, probably more than anyone in history, and a hundred and some books out there, and I got gray hair from all that, and uh, that's kind of who I am, and all I want to do is go to heaven and take as many people with me as I can, and enjoy every moment of it. So now, Josh, you have a lot of incredible books, but I have to say that, you know, because I'm 53, I've been around for a few years, too. I remember how impactful your very first book was on my life. Um, what one? Which one was it? Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Was That was your very first one, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Can you tell... That took me 13 years. Yeah. My second one took me 42 hours. Hmm. Can you tell people about that journey that you went through for the writing of that first book? Well, the journey reflected my uh, journey to Christ. Uh, I set out actually to write Evidence that Demands a Verdict to make a joke of Christianity. Because I was challenged to intellectually examine two things, the deity of Christ and the scriptures, and I thought that was a joke, because I truly believe Christians had two brains. One was lost, the other was out looking for it. And uh, they kept irritating me by challenging me to do it intellectually, that I said, okay, I'll accept your challenge, but I didn't do it to prove, I did it to refute them. Well, needless to say, I became one of them, and spent 13 years documenting why I believe. And that became evidence of demands a verdict. Now, when it came out, I knew it was going to be a runaway bestseller, but I was the only person that knew that because almost every push publisher rejected it. In fact, every publisher rejected it, so I self-published it. It came out on a Friday. By Monday, it was a runaway, runaway bestseller for 54 months, and then every publisher in the world wanted it after that. And... Uh, but I knew it was going to be a bestseller, and it did. It became one. What impact, I mean, other than, of course, you found Jesus, but what impact did sharing what you knew that you knew uh, make in your own personal life? Well, first of all, my own personal life, it built in deep convictions, not just beliefs, but convictions. A difference between a belief and a conviction is a belief, you know what you believe. A conviction, you know what you believe, you know why you believe it, and you experience it. And so doing all this research, it really answered the question, why do I believe it? And that led to experiencing it. And uh, that was the greatest impact in my life, knowing I didn't have to surrender the intellectual that uh, the tr Bible's true, and it says, uh, be ready always to give an answer of the hope that is in you. In other words, use your brain. Uh, but where I'm excited is how God has used it globally for years. Uh, I think it was World Magazine featured as one of the 40 most influential books of the last 50 years, I think, something like that, uh, of affecting lives. And that's what encourages me, is when it affects others. So you've written 150 plus books. Um, which one of them was the most 
difficult for you to share with people? <coughs> so you're not <coughs> not asking which is the most difficult to write, but which is the most difficult to share with others. Is that what you're asking? Correct, yes. Oh, gosh. Probably uh, beyond belief. Because there was no model out there for it. Uh, and so I had to struggle to write it. But many of my books I co-authored. I really believe in co-authoring. Take the brilliance of two people and marry them together to minister to one person. I really believe in that. I know my strengths, but boy, I got a lot of weaknesses. And I like to uh, reinforce my weaknesses with somebody else's strengths. Uh, so beyond belief was probably the most difficult that it is to share with others. That's powerful. Have you ever had that moment right before, you know, like the night before a book comes out where you questioned, what if people don't accept this book? I've never had that. For two reasons. For two reasons. One, I hardly ever do a book that doesn't address a key cultural church issue. Second, before I release a book, during the whole process, I interact with others. We bounce it off uh, uh, small groups of people. What do you call that? Uh, <laughs> I can't think of it right now. But uh, various groups, I bounce it off of. What do you think of it? Am I on the right trail? Everything. So by the time it comes out, I know it's going to identify. And it often comes out a lot different than what I initially planned to do. Because there's great wisdom in much counsel. And uh, as I would write the book and everything, get ready to release it, we use the counsel of others. They gave insights that I could never come up with. Focus groups. That's what I wanted to, I was grappling for. So these days, if you were to write a book, would you use like Facebook or LinkedIn or something like that to be your, fo your focus group? Or do you even use social media sites like that? Well, yes. But I use a very small group, maybe three, four people. You get beyond that, you're polling people's ignorance. <coughs> you can't decipher much more than three or four people's input. So you got to choose the right people. And today I'd probably do that with five, at the max, six people on the Internet. I wouldn't just throw it out there. That wouldn't do much good, I don't think. That's good. That's good advice. <laughs> so for a person who it's their first book um, and they are really looking at what, uh, you know, what should I put out there, um, do you recommend to them to ask three or four people? And if so, which three or four people do they pick? I would ask at least three or four people, but I would do research. I research it out. When I write a book, I know it's relevant out there. Uh, or a lot of my books write anticipating what the issues would be three to five years from now. Uh, boy, what was that question again? So how many people <laughs> would you, you know, would you check with before you determine this is what I should write? Oh, here, there's two smart things about writing a book that most people do not do, overwhelming majority. One, listen to your publisher. Your publisher often knows the audience, their audience, better than you do. And publishers have a lot of experience of the good, the bad, the ugly, of success, and believe me, there's not a publisher that hasn't experienced failure. And most of them are so smart, they know why they had the success <laughs> and they know why they fail. And so I like to take advantage of that with people out there like that. And I do. 
Uh, second, most people go out and they come to me, they've written a book and want my endorsement of it. Who's the publisher? Why well, I'm gone yet. And I said, oh man, are you doing it all backwards? You don't go out and write a book like 95% of people do and then try to find a publisher. You go out and find a publisher, then you start writing the book. And what you do before you ever write beyond one or two chapters, you do your two best chapters and you send it to the publisher. Let them critique it. And trust me, they will critique it. But every time it makes it better and better and better. So listen to your publisher and don't write the whole book. Write one or two of your best chapters. Doesn't have to be number one, number two. And send it to your publisher and get their response to it. Because publishers love to do it that way. They do not like it. Somebody comes along, manuscript's all done, then they give it to a publisher. And for most publishers, they just throw their hands in the air. Why? Publishers like to have an input. And once it's all done, they've lost all their input. And I don't care what manuscript it is, there are certain things they think this can be done better, and it's too late. Next question. So since you self-published your first book, how do you feel about people just uh, self-publishing, especially their first book? No. I think if you look at it, even self-publishing, internet, and everything else, probably 95% fail or more. Just once in a while, you'll hit it right, but not very often. Uh, no matter what you can distribute individually, if you have the right publisher, and there's different publishers for different themes, you have the right publisher, you will multiply your efforts. You can still do everything you do individually, but then you got the power of the publisher behind you. And they're doing it with all their people. Well, that does make a lot of sense. So, Because most of you are not as good writers as you think you are. I wasn't. I'm not a good writer. I need good editors. What I'm good at is content. I'll stand nose to nose with anyone on content. But, boy, when I look at Lee Strobel and others, I sit back and say, Lord, why didn't you give me just a little bit of that talent? So when you write a book, and, I mean, obviously, even from your very first book, you've had a lot of people give you criticism from them. But let's talk about the spirit behind that. Why do you think that it's so easy for us as people to find fault rather than see the wisdom. See, I thought you were asking that in a positive one. I love criticism, especially in the process. Most people won't be honest with you. I love the criticism. The criticism has helped me more than praise. Uh, no, I, I thank God for people that will be critical. But so much of it depends on their attitude. See, that makes the difference between good criticism or poor criticism. The attitude. Yeah, totally get that. What do you find, though, is the spirit that's driving those people who are just being critical for critical sake? I don't know. Interview them and find out. <laughs> Probably some are jealous. Some are so carnal they can't see beyond anything that's negative. And I, I don't know, I think most people with me, they're very sincere. I do. Uh, maybe one or two critics on the internet, whatever, you know, they got two brains, but one is lost and the other's out looking for it. Well, Josh. You can tell real fast. You can read something on the internet and everything else and pretty well tell. Why are they asking that? What's the motivation behind it? By their attitude. So out of all the books you've written, and this is a totally unfair question, but out of all the books you've written, which one was your favorite? Oh, probably, oh golly, Morna Carpenter. I know it's kind of like a guy. I would say Morna Carpenter, your best summary, 
of what and how I think uh, in layman terms. Uh, and then I think, boy, I did one called The Secret of Loving. Woo! It's had an impact all over the world. I was in Russia one time and this head of a denomination, it was a Pentecostal denomination, and they asked if we could have lunch at McDonald's because they knew I would buy McDonald's in Russia is a middle-class meal. It's not cheap for a Russian. And uh, I met with them, and they took the copy of, Morna, of uh, The Secret of Loving they had, threw it on the table. It was all worn. I opened it up. Every single word in it was highlighted in yellow. Oh, I wish I said to him, can I buy this? Can I trade 10 other books for it? I wish I had it today. And he said, Josh, in all of Russia, we've never had an understanding like what you are presenting in this book. I got to tell you, Steve, that encouraged me. But uh, The Secret of Loving is really, I wrote it three times. Why? I wrote it once. I dictated it. First book I dictated. And I got home and I sat up in bed at 2 o'clock in the morning. I said, oh, no. I had these little tapes from my dictating machine. And on the airplane, I set the four of them down on the seat next to me and forgot them. Oh, my gosh. I didn't sleep for a week. So I rewrote the whole thing. Then I had a railroad caboose as my study out and back in the woods. And uh, had everything with it, the train tracks, everything. And... Uh, I cut a side hole for a, what kind of window you call it? A bay window into it. And so I finished the manuscript. I was so proud. I left it on the sill, went to bed, got next morning. It was a huge storm that night. The caboose leaked and the whole manuscript was destroyed. So for the third boy, was it hard. But I kept telling myself there's one of two reasons why this happened. Either it was so bad, God didn't want me to do that one, or it was so good, Satan didn't want it. <laughs> I figured it was one of the two. So not many authors write the same book three times. It would be a lot of fun to be able to see all three of them and see what God edited in and out of what you wrote. <laughs> it was pretty much the same, I think. I really do. Uh because I just wrote it straight through without going to bed. Uh, never went to sleep or anything except go to the bathroom and, and uh, grab a bite to eat uh, in the house. Uh, but it's not about between physical copies and digital, probably a couple hundred million. And so uh, maybe I need to do it three times. <laughs> So some of our listeners, I know they're brand new baby authors. They're still even just working on the, what is that thing inside? They're probably not baby authors. They're ones that, that what do you call them, uh, potential authors, or what's the word for it? Um, what, what's the word for somebody that wants to be, but they're not there yet? Like actors go to Hollywood because it's their dream, but they're not yet. Anyway. What? No. Uh, most of them aren't authors yet. You're not an author until you finish it. Yeah, that's for sure. For that, and I'll tell you this. I, maybe I'm the only one who ever does this, but every book I go through, I have these haunting questions in the back of my mind. And when I finished Morna Carpenter, it was my second book, totally, completely different format, than uh, evidence that demands a verdict. And I remember I sent it off to Tyndale Press. I got it back on a Friday, and I remember it so well because I was in Point Loma, California, a suburb of San Diego, doing a big Nazarene youth conference. And before I left San Bernardino, where I left the time to drive down there, I got the manuscript in the mail, airmailed, and I couldn't open it. Oh, I kept thinking, what if they didn't like it? Oh, 
after all that, whatever, one day didn't like it. What am I going to do? And uh, so finally, Monday, I got back home and I said, look, I got to open this. So I prayed and prayed and prayed, opened it. And Virginia Hearn, who was the editor for his magazine for InterVarsity, an incredible woman and really smart and very critical, not in a negative sense, in a positive sense, in writing and all. And they chose her as the editor. I broke out in a sweat. So opened up, and on the top of the manuscript, Virginia had written, she'll never know what this meant to me. She said, Josh, this is by far one of the best manuscripts Tyndale has ever received. I broke out. I said, oh, Lord, I've had all this agony since Friday because I wasn't trusting you. Mm. And so I learned to trust the Lord even through my agony. That is really powerful, too, because that really is the secret to that person who wants to be an author but is struggling with even what to say, isn't it? I think everybody in the world wants to be an author or a great celebrity or a a Hollywood actor or actress. Everyone has that little itching in their heart and their, uh, in their worldview. But a lot of people, they could make good authors, but they're not willing to take the risk. It's a risk. Books cost money. It takes time. Uh, And there's never an absolute certainty until it's been out there about a month. But then there's different books. Some books take off like evidence did overnight. It exploded onto the scene. And I've done a number of children's books. And non-children's books usually would take off real fast and then gradually go down. Often children's books will start out slow and then they'll progressively take off. And so during that slow period on some of my children's books, I went, oh, my gosh, all that work, effort, money, everything, and it's not going. Then the publisher said, just hang on. And every one of them took off. So what piece of advice would you give to the listeners um, to help them be able to share their message with the world? Don't write. <laughs> write will give you, writing will give you gray hair. And if you really write, it takes hours, a lot of, I would get up at 4, 4.30 in the morning and write until 4 or 5 in the afternoon, day after day. With Morna Carpenter, I wrote 72 hours straight, never took a break uh, except to go to the bathroom and eat. I think, I don't care how good you are at writing, you need to feel there's a calling there. Every person has something to share with the world. And you know, some of your books that have some of the greatest content are never published. They never go anywhere. It just blows my mind. Uh, I've had somebody send me a book and I read it and I thought, wow, this is good, great advice, insight. And it never went anywhere. Then I've seen other books and eh, it's pretty good. I'm not sure I want to endorse this or whatever. And it takes off into a runaway bestseller. So you never know. So Josh, is there anything uh, before we close up here that I could promote for you, your business, your family, things that you're doing these days? Oh, just keep doing what you're doing, interviewing people like me and promoting their ideas, their works, what they do to help others. That's one of the best things you can do and to help leaders and influencers. Um, We have a campaign coming up called Resolution. In about a week, week and a half, you can go to my website and it'll give you the background. It's it's going to be books, workbooks, videos, uh, web, blogs, everything. And it's to help people to maneuver through today's culture. In the day of the internet, pornography, loneliness, everything. It's going to be revolutionary called Resolution. 
And that's at so, uh, josh.org. Once you go to the website and read about it, go out and promote it. Perfect. Well, Josh, you I got to go here, my friend. Yeah, you have been a huge influence in my life. I appreciate all that you've done for me personally as well as my family. And thank you for spending this time with us here today. You know, Steve, there's people out there that you touch that would like to say the same thing to you. That's what's so neat. God bless my brother thank and you. take care. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye. 152 books later, many years of exploring, discovering, and being open to seeing the truth that really is out in the world. And then, and here's the cool part, the thing that I admire the most about Josh, and that's the fact that when he saw the truth, when he saw what was real, he was willing to change. I encourage each of you to really think about that for a minute and to embrace the concept of that. It's okay. Wherever you're at right now, I don't want you to feel judgment. I don't want you to feel a sense of, oh, woe is me, I'm less than, I'm not hitting the mark, I'm not writing 152 books, whatever. I don't want you to feel those things. I want you to rather be inspired by the concept of you're going down the path that you're going down now. And then new information comes and your whole entire life changes. And the course of who you were, what you were intending to do, and what you just knew you were gonna do with your life, it changes. And then you are someone else, someone amazing, someone better than what you could have ever imagined. You find yourself like the little trees on the hill who dreamt of living their best life, of being the bed for a royal king, of being a ship that carried great cargoes, the greatest of all treasures, or of just simply standing on the hill and pointing men to God. And even like the little trees when they found out that rather than being the royal bed, that the one became the manger that Jesus was laid in rather than being a massively wonderful sailing ship, being a fishing boat that happened to be the one that Peter owned, that was flooded one day with fish when Jesus came by, or to only ever aspire to point men to God and be cut down and transformed into the cruelest of all things that a tree could ever become, a cross. And to have a man's life taken on you. Only to ever be the only tree that ever stands forever and points a man to God. You see, we have our plans and I'm not in any way belittling your plans. I think, though, if you're open to it, that what you'll see is, wait, I have something for you. And it is so much greater than anything that you ever imagined. And that's living your fullest and bestest life every day as a thriving entrepreneur. You've heard Kathy and I talk about it. You've seen the workshops. You have watched as others of your friends have become a best-selling author. And now it's your turn. Let me ask you this. What would being a best-selling author do for your business? Over 80% of people surveyed said that they want to write a book, which means that if you're listening, you probably are one of those people. Now is your time because you have a message that needs to be shared. That message is not for you. It's not for your ego. It is because it serves other people. Kathy and I are here to help you share your unique brilliance with the world. 
All you need to do is go to wehelpyouthrive.com, check us out, and find out how you can be a best-selling author today. Welcome back to Thriving Entrepreneur. This is Steve. Welcome back. It's interesting to me how the episodes come together. Sometimes I try to manipulate them, you know, and I will take a guest that, you know, maybe I interviewed somebody on Tuesday and I'll skip the Tuesday one and put them in the next week and put the person that was on Thursday with the one from Monday, uh, you know, because they gel better. But in this particular case, the story of this gentleman, I just feel like it meshes so well because what he started out and what he's doing now were such a dramatic change and yet because he was open to being fully and completely absolutely everything he could be he now is making a difference for his family for himself and in the world and I really wanted to bring that to you for the second interview for today's uh, show to be able to really help you see the possibilities of living fully as yourself every day. Join me in welcoming Jason Barrow. Hey, Jason, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Steve. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you here with us. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what got you to the point you're at in real estate. Sure. Um, Born and raised in Erie, PA, uh, started buying property um, in 2001. Actually closed on our first uh, duplex a, uh, a week before 9-11. And, um, you know, all, all the while, uh, you know, my wife and I both had day jobs in um, medical sales. So I uh, was able to leave my job in 2012. She left her job in 2010. Um, you know, fast forward to today. Uh, we've got roughly a thousand uh, units under ownership. That's a mix of about two thirds of that is stuff we own just ourselves with no partners. And then a third of that is, is some, uh, some properties that we've uh, syndicated and brought partners in on. So I know, especially, well, up until the recent chaos that is the world, a lot of okay. people lately have been really expressing to me an interest in you know, either having a real estate portfolio or going fully into that. Um, let's start off with the easy uh, question. Is that something you would recommend that people do? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that um, real estate is, is not, um, nothing's recession proof, but it's, it's pretty recession resistant depending on the type of property you buy and, and the, the location as well as what your ultimate goal is. So I, I would 100% recommend it in, in any economic climate. So what does that brand new starter person that's never invested in real estate, didn't go to anybody's seminar, what is that first thing that they really need to do? Well, I would say the first thing would be defining whether they want to take an active or a passive role in, in their investment. So um, that could be, you know, that could look something like, you know, they, they could buy a duplex or a handful of, of smaller properties and become a landlord, you know, and, and receive the rents, pay their bills. And, and they're essentially creating themselves a job, um, which is nothing wrong with it. That, that's sort of how we started. The, uh, um, the other way would be if, if they want to take more of a passive role would be to try and find somebody that you are comfortable with as a owner and operator of real estate and, um, uh, and invest with them so that they can, they can do the work. They can, they can get you a, uh, a stable, predictable return on your investment. So really just that it comes down to defining what type of role um, they'd want to have in terms of investing in real estate. So I know with the other real estate people I've talked with, the number one question I get from our listeners is, how much money and what kind of credit score do I really need in order to legitimately get started? Well, it, it can be, a, you can have a terrible credit score and no money and still get started. So I will, I will, I will kind of caveat that with, um, you know, you would need a, a, a strong partner um, 
typically or or strong relationships uh, to, to to find loans that that you can qualify for or someone to lend you money um, if your credit is not great. Um, but uh, I've I've seen it time and time again where somebody's getting started and you know they they find a really good deal and somebody lends them fifty or a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars and and they kind of partner up on um, on buying real estate together. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of folks that start with nothing. I mean, when we started out, you know, almost 20 years ago, um, our first deal, um, was, you know, took about $3,500 to, to close. And, um, I mean, somebody can make that, you know, as the economy opens back up, I mean, somebody can make that, you know, um, in a few months of driving Uber or, you know, waiting tables or bartending or something like that. Um, so there's, there's always that ability to, to work a little harder and save up a few bucks to, to, to save up that money for a first deal if you want to go it alone. So do you, do you recommend to a person that in most cases starting out in the partnership uh, kind of a route might be better than trying to go it alone to start with? Uh, no, I, 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 honestly, I think everybody's a um, case by case basis and you know my opinion would um you know probably default to the way i've done it um so i guess it depends on you know it really depends on what type of person this is i mean if they if they're they're starting out and they want to try and create wealth and and they're willing to create almost a second day job you know uh for instance i mean they're they're going to start buying properties and 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 working their way out of a day job but um you you know if somebody say a high income earner maybe a physician uh, you know business executive an attorney and they um they've got extra funds to invest they would be ones i think that would you know want to team up with somebody who's just starting out or somebody who's very experienced that they could they could entrust with uh with their capital and, and, and partner up in that fashion so, I mean, I, I would assume that like everything else in life, ultimately it's work. Um, yep. What does the typical day in the life of a real estate investor look like? Well, I guess the thing is that it's, there's no, there's no typical day. Um, and there's so many ways to invest in real estate, you know, again, from, um, from being a, uh, uh, whether you're just going to, you know, if the goal is to be a mom and pop landlord or if the goal is to syndicate and buy thousands of units. Um, I think most of the, most of my colleagues that I talk to a lot of the time is spent sourcing deals, locating financing, managing, you know, managing your property manager, uh, managing your maintenance team. But as you start out, you know, again, if you if your goal is just to buy units and manage those yourself, it, it might be, you know, it might just be, you know, having your hands, you know, your boots on the ground, for yourself, for your own properties. So really just no typical day in, in the business, but it's always about trying to, trying to find a, trying to fi- try and find quality property, uh, try and find quality loans and funds to, to close the property and, and, uh, and keep moving forward. Are there any people that you've met or that you've coached with that um, in looking back, you would say for this kind of person, maybe, being in real estate isn't good for them? Are there people that fit into that category? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> the, uh, one of the, uh, the types of the folks that I, I see that um, I, I have a friend of, of mine who's a, a real estate broker locally, and he, he's probably one of the smartest analytical minds as it relates to real estate investment. Um, and I've known him for 20 years. And in that 20 years, he keeps talking about you know doing things but he's not an action taker and so i think for those that are that that tend to suffer from analysis paralysis i think their best bet is to focus on investing with with a team or or with someone that can can make those decisions otherwise they're going to be sitting on the sidelines and, and just continually miss miss uh, opportunity um you know, the other thing is if, if somebody needs all the extra liquidity in, in their life they may not uh um, uh, you know, real estate's not always a, a, well, it's never a liquid, liquid um, situation. So a lot of times, you know, your net worth is tied up in real estate, which is a good thing. But, you know, if you need, a, if you need to pull your equity out right away, um, that, that, that's usually not possible. So, so again, just to summarize, I think folks that, that need extra liquidity in their life um, and or people that, uh, that sort of suffer from the analysis paralysis. 
Mm, that's a good answer. So really it boils down to kind of a, how do you manage yourself? How do you get through each day? Is that a, is that a good way of saying it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that, that that was probably the one of the harder adjustments when, when I left my day job about eight years ago was, you know, how to manage your, yourself. And that's just, you know, your daily activity to your personal development and, and your mindset. And one of the things that I've learned is that, you know, it, it's perfect is the enemy of good. You know, progress is, um, is better than perfection. And, you know, I, I find that, you know, on a daily basis, I try and work on myself. You know, I try and make time to, uh, to plan on the, you know, plan the business, work on my goals, uh, you know, make sure that our, our metrics are being met in the business. Um, but working on myself, so be re reading a new book, um, you know, keeping up on industry trends, um, you know, networking with, with uh, friends and colleagues that are, uh, you know, that are either ahead of where, where I want to go or that uh, are maybe kind of following our path and, and just, um, you know, really just trying to feed my mind with positivity. And that, that's really 90% of it is, is creating a positive mindset. Um, so during, you know, times like this, you don't get, uh, you don't get bogged down in, in the negativity. No, I promise you that I won't uh, hold you to this and say, well, yeah, but Jason said, um, but what is your guess for what the real estate market's going to look like once people can start going back out and looking at houses? Sure. I, well, I think that uh, for every month of disruption um, and stay at home orders that this has caused, I mean, there's probably several months of, of people figuring out what the new normal looks like. So, um, you know, residential housing um, will probably start to come back as, as people, um, you know, we, we're looking at this crazy unemployment rate. So say 25% of the country is unemployed at the moment. But that still means that 75% of the country is employed. And, and then a large number of those jobs um, that people lost will be coming back as the country starts to open. So I think it'll take some time. Um, you know, we have to be patient as, as things get back to normal. So from a, from a, um, a realtor or broker showing houses uh, situation that, you know, that, that may last a little while from, from the multifamily perspective and, and the investment side of the business, um, you know, we, we've seen some uh, operators, some, owners such as my and myself and, and I have several friends across the country in the business that haven't haven't really skipped a beat. You know, they're still raising money, still, still, you know, getting projects done. Um, but again, that, that a lot of that is geographic dependent. So, you know, things may take a really big hit in, in a market, for instance, on, on, uh, you know, the West coast or say a big city where, you know, um, a lot of folks are, are going through a rent strike. You know, a lot of renters are, trying to not pay their bills that, that really can have a, a, a long short-term negative impact on, on the multifamily business. But with every, with every downturn, there's a, uh, there is opportunity to buy. So, um, so I think that there'll still be strong opportunities and probably even stronger ones as, as several, uh, several folks might be um, may not, maybe weren't as liquid as they needed to be, or, um, you know, or just didn't, didn't uh, you know, plan ahead for, for disaster pre uh, preparedness. Now, do you have a uh, class or anything like that that you teach others, uh, something that we could help promote for you? Yeah, yeah, we do. Um, you know, we do take a limited number of students every year. Um, so um, what that looks like is it's, you know, one-on-one -on -one coaching. Um, it's it's uh, an hour long with myself uh, or uh, uh, I have a partner, one of our deals that does the same thing. So we try to see who's the best fit. And we, um, you know, we, we schedule an hour every other week. And we basically outline their goals at the beginning and then put a plan in place to get them to uh, get them to achieve that in six to 12 months. So that may, may be as basic as buying their first property or, or maybe, you know, much more advanced, you know, in terms of say doubling their business or, or something like that. Um, and if people want to learn more about it, they can connect with me through my Calendly link. Um, they can go on calendly.com forward slash Jason or just email me directly at Jason or Jason at yahoo.com. Perfect. I really appreciate that. So give us one thing that a person who isn't at a place yet where they could afford to hire you um, that they could take action on right now today. I think the biggest thing is, is, you know, starting to journal 
And um, so writing down your goals, um, really having a clear picture of what it is they want to, uh, that they want to do moving forward with their life and, um, you know, taking, you know, taking some sort of action to get towards that goal. So, um, you know, listen to, listen to podcasts such as yours, um, you know, just feed their brain with, with everything they can from a personal development standpoint, because the more they do that, the closer they're going to get to, to take an action towards their goals. Jason, thank you so much for spending some time with us on the show here today. Thank you very much. I, I had a lot of fun. As they say sometimes, this was recorded with limited commercial interruptions to be able to bring the best content to you. And it only had just a few little mocha interruptions in there. Um, I hope that the uh, shrill bark there at the beginning didn't hurt your ears too much. I appreciate you hanging with us. Um, you know, whether I'm producing the show at 10.30 at night and Mocha is convinced that the boogeyman's going to get her, or I'm doing them, uh, you know, 8 o'clock in the morning, it's always interesting to see what's going to come together for you. I love to be able to just have the faults and imperfections, the phone going bubbling in the background and things like that, to be able to have real life. That's why I like doing the interviews the way that I do them is because I really just want you to feel like you're getting to listen into a conversation in between friends. That you kind of get an inside intimate view into a person's life and then get some insider secrets. I want you to always feel that way when you're listening to the show. And I want you to think of yourself that way too. You know, it would totally be my honor to have you be one of the people that I work with and more importantly that I highlight you here on the show. I love bringing guest speakers but also my best-selling authors to you to help you. I love helping people really take and find the right words to powerfully show up in the world. Maybe you're looking for a way where you can be more impactful. Maybe you need to do a little bit of a reboot in your life. I'm there. I'm in that place right now in my own life if you're listening to this live. I'm looking at what's, what's best, what's next, and how do I maximize who I am to help the most people make the most impact in the world. And as we go through this transition together, I want us both to be mindful of the fact that you are uniquely brilliant. You were created for a purpose. Absolutely you were. And the world needs you. Thank you for being you. Thank you for showing up every day as the best part of you, the best you you can be, and doing what only you can do to get it done in the world, to be amazing every day, and to live every day of your life as a thriving entrepreneur. Thank you for you. I appreciate you. I want you to know that I'm here for you, to help you in any way that I can. Until we're together again next time or on Facebook Live or wherever, I hope that you will have a great week. Thanks for listening to Thriving Entrepreneur today. If you want to get your question answered, send an email to questions at wehelpyouthrive.com. We look forward to you joining us again next time. You've heard Kathy and I talk about it. You've seen the workshops. You have watched as others of your friends have become a best-selling author. And now it's your turn. Let me ask you this. What would being a best-selling author do for your business? Over 80% of people surveyed said that they want to write a book, which means that if you're listening, you probably are one of those people. Now is your time because you have a message that needs to be shared. That message is not for you. It's not for your ego. It is because it serves other people. Kathy and I are here to help you share your unique brilliance with the world. All you need to do is go to wehelp.com 
youthrive.com. Check us out and find out how you can be a best-selling author today. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.